Hello, welcome to my podcast Ukraine War Decoded. I'm Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. This podcast is about the war that Russia launched against Ukraine, as well as about security in Europe and on the post-Soviet space. My guest today is Alexander Lanoshka from Canada. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the Balsali School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. He is an expert in the defensive alliances and European security. We will discuss the alliances around Ukraine and around Russia during this war of 2022. To warm up, I would ask you, Alexander, to compare two Russian invasions into Ukraine in 2014 and 2022. At first, the Western countries were not interested in helping Ukraine, so it led to concessions from Kyiv and the loss of territory. Now the West is actively supporting Ukraine in its fight against Russia. I think in 2014, a lot of us, especially in the West, were very naive about great power politics, in particular the likelihood that a country like Russia could go as far as attacking a neighboring country to invade it, to annex a whole part of another country. There was, of course, knowledge that this could happen, but I think that knowledge was more theoretical, was more intellectual, was not visceral. I think there was this inability to grapple with this new reality. I also think that at that time, there was just very little knowledge in uh, Western capitals, especially Washington, D.C., about Ukraine itself. I think this was still a time when most people thought that the country was simply one where East-West division, mostly long linguistic lines, mostly ignoring the rich diversity that does indeed characterize Ukraine. So when Russia did annex Crimea, it was somewhat acceptable because these were Russian speakers, if not Russians themselves. And so it was completely illegal under international law. Since 2014, we've learned a lot more about Russia. We've been paying a lot more attention. Uh, We have been observing uh, hostilities in the Donbass region. Uh, Russia has certainly stepped up its activities in and around the Baltic region as well. NATO, for its part, has also stepped up its presence in a manner that is commensurate to some extent with what Russia does in that particular region. One can, of course, raise questions as to whether it's sufficient or not. But nevertheless, uh, that was the sense. And I think precisely because that this war has been going on for several years, incurring as many as 14,000, there was much more awareness of what sort of actor Russia is, not least because of things like the 2016 uh, presidential election in the United States and the interference thereof, uh, the attack in Salisbury, the use of Novichok against uh, Alexei Navalny. All of these things, I think, have contributed to a much darker, more grounded picture of Russia than that which existed in 2014, such that when we did observe the military buildup in 2021, it, at least for many of us, not all of us, uh, seemed to signal a serious commitment on the part of Russia to escalate the war and undertake a military invasion. Of course, like I said, there were differences of opinion, but I think people had gone smarter. And so they were able to calibrate with the responses accordingly. To justify his war against Ukraine, Putin, among other arguments, claimed that the NATO endangers Russia, and this alliance is getting closer and closer to the Russian borders. But he got what he didn't expect. Now NATO is getting even closer to Russia. It deployed more troops and weapons to Poland and the Baltic countries. Also, Sweden and Finland 
previously neutral countries, are currently in the process of joining NATO. Your opinion about this response? Well, before I go into Sweden and Finland in particular, I, I want to take up the very first part of your question, which is about how Putin perceives NATO. It is true that he has made those sorts of statements about NATO and NATO enlargement being a threat to Russian security interests. However, he's also made statements that dismiss the idea that NATO does pose a security threat to Russia itself. On the occasion of the Baltics joining the alliance in 2004, he himself had said that NATO was more or less a relic of the past, ill-adapted to contemporary challenges. And so the accession of the Baltic countries to the alliance really did not impinge upon Russian security interests, even though there were indeed members of the Russian foreign policy establishment, military establishment that did take a different view about the meaning of those countries joining NATO. On Sweden and Finland itself, we did see consistently from various Russian leaders that their movement towards joining NATO would precipitate some sort of military response on the part of Russia. What sort of military response that would be was always unclear. It did seem to many observers, especially in Finland and Sweden, that that uncertainty over the Russian response caused some to be hesitant about the desirability of NATO. But I think we need to be also clear that although Sweden and Finland were outside of the alliance, although it seems like it's quite a sea change for them to now openly seek the alliance, and indeed they have made those moves already, it's just a matter of all 30 members ratifying their adhesion to the alliance. The fact of the matter is Sweden and Finland were already cooperating quite significantly with NATO. They were already enhanced opportunities uh, program partners. They've already contributed uh, forces even under NATO command. They did so in Afghanistan. As recently as last year, Finland had agreed to buy a large package of F-35 missile, uh, F-35 fighter jets package that President Biden himself had said would signal the new start or deepening of the Finnish-American relationship. So already the security basis of the relationship between Finland and Sweden and the United States for that matter, or NATO more generally, was fairly significant. And so I think it's important to recognize that as much as it is a sea change, as it were, and partly because of how those countries have identified themselves as neutral or what have you, the practical significance is maybe less than what one might think. Of course, there are going to be certain benefits to them joining NATO. One for them is that they'll have regular access to North Atlantic Council proceedings. They'll have a vote. They'll have a veto. They'll be able to undertake participation in joint military planning. But they've already undertaken participation in Article 5 military exercises. One thing I would like to highlight is that by joining NATO, they do get rid of an inefficiency, as it were. Because they were already cooperating quite significantly with NATO countries in and around the Baltic space, precisely because they were shut out of certain uh, NATO decision-making bodies, not the least of which, of course, uh, the North Atlantic Council, by having them being part of these bodies now will allow for us to simply assume their participation in any sort of Baltic regional contingency in a manner that could not have been done before. And so I think as much as the practical element may not be as significant as some people might think it is still all the more important that they do join because it does remove those sorts of inefficiencies. And for what it's worth, the Russian response to them joining NATO has actually been fairly muted. It seems like uh, the Russian um, bark is definitely worse than its bite. My next question is about the behavior of Turkey. 
As we know, this is the NATO country, and it should be a part of the unified response towards Russia. But it seems like President Erdogan is trying to be good for both sides of the conflict. On one hand, Turkey helps Ukraine with combat drones and grain export, but on the other hand, it didn't join the international sanctions, and Erdogan maintains personal relations with Putin. Moreover, Turkey declared that it is against the idea of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Why the West can't simply say to Erdogan, hey, you can't behave like that? Turkey is a very interesting case. With respect to Sweden and Finland, what had happened there, I think, was largely predictable. Most people did think that Erdogan was going to play the veto card in order to extract certain uh, concessions, not from Finland, but really from Sweden because of Kurds who are even in the Swedish parliament and have been a source of friction between Sweden and Turkey. Finland, I think, simply got caught in all that because Finland wanted Sweden to be more or less in lockstep with it as it joins NATO. Turkey is a very hyper-realist actor in this sense because it is doing quite a bit to help Ukraine in a certain fashion. And I really just mean the Bayraktar and how they're, they've agreed to not only provide those drones, but also to build a factory in Ukraine. And that has been significant on its own right. What's Interesting, though, is that we have to asterisk uh, the provision of Barakta because I think from Turkey's perspective, they're not doing this for the same reasons as what Poland might be doing or the Baltic countries might be doing when they provide military assistance. They're doing it largely for commercial reasons. They're getting some money out of it or some publicity out of it. In fact, if you look at Kiel uh, Institute's own data, the Kiel Institute, as you know, tracks arms transfers to Ukraine since the end of January of 2022. Turkey is actually fairly low on the list of countries that do provide military assistance. So to the extent that they've been providing those Barakhtar, which obviously have been very symbolically important, have had a very real tangible effect on the battlefield, especially in the early stages of the special military operation. Its actual military assistance to Ukraine has been very limited. It has provided some diplomatic avenues or probably a diplomatic forum for Ukraine and Russia to talk, especially with more recently concluded agreement on getting grain out of Ukraine. But Turkey does not want to alienate Russia too much. It sees some opportunity for making commercial gains, especially with regards to trade with Russia. I think it's one of the few countries that has actually seen an uptick in trade with Russia since this whole thing had started in February. But at the same time, from NATO's perspective, you want Turkey as a member all the same precisely because of its unique geopolitical positioning, precisely because it is sitting on the Dardanelles, it can close access and indeed has declared the area as a war zone, which obviously puts into place certain elements of the Montreal Convention. So for that reason alone, Turkey is very important. It does not have as much leverage as it might think against certain NATO countries. Even with respect to Sweden and Finland, people predicted that would do what it did. But at the end of the day, it did more or less accede to those requests. It hasn't yet ratified Sweden and Finland's uh, membership, it may simply hold out until the very end to do so. But I think it itself recognizes that it has a very limited bargaining leverage here, all the same. But I think uh, it's still better to have Turkey within the alliance for all of its hyper-realism and cynicism that might be characteristic of its policies. But this is not necessarily unusual. This is the history of, of Turkey being a member of the alliance since basically the 1950s when it first joined. 
My next question is about the security alliances that may support Russia in this war against Ukraine. Currently, Moscow leads its own defensive bloc of the post-Soviet states, which is called the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Besides Russia, it currently consists of five countries. Belarus at the border with Poland and Ukraine, Armenia on Caucasus bordering Turkey, and three more countries in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan. Moscow is using this block in its war against Ukraine, in particular the territory of Belarus. Alexander, would you please share your opinion about how strong is that Moscow's block? This really has been one of the more interesting of underreported parts of the history of the special military operation, in part because it saw its high watermark just before. I think everyone has more or less forgotten, but in January, uh, there was the intervention in Kazakhstan to suppress domestic revolt there. And that was seen as being uh, something that could have perhaps even diverted Russian military attention from Ukraine. And so it could have bought time for the Ukrainian armed forces or even the society. And yet, not long after the launching of the special military operation itself, Kazakhstan has played it very cool with Russia, distancing itself from Russia by stating openly that it would not recognize um, Russian territorial gains uh, at the expense of Ukraine, has moved closer to China under the leadership of Tokayev. And it seems like the larger CSTO is in disarray precisely because for those that are closer to Afghanistan, there are concerns now that uh, Russia would not be able to provide uh, the military forces needed to undertake anti-terrorism operations. And indeed, given the fact that Russia is losing so much of its combat potential in Ukraine, its own reliability as a security guarantor for those countries in Central Asia will become increasingly suspect, will become also a less desirable country with which to do trade precisely because of sanctions and the weakening of its economy. So from an alliance management perspective, Russia has completely mismanaged things. The CSTO seemed to have kind of kicked into gear finally in January with the intervention in Kazakhstan. And because it was a limited operation, it seemed to be very successful. But six, seven months hence, Kazakhstan seems not to really fall into Russia's orbit. To the contrary, it seems to be moving away from it. Other allies are starting to raise their own concerns about Russia. And I've not even spoken about Belarus, which everyone had predicted to get involved. Many people had said that Lukashenko only does what Putin asks him to do. But I think clearly we see that there are serious disagreements, even if Lukashenko is really caught between a hard place and a rock insofar as he has very limited room for maneuver. He still seems to have sufficient room for maneuver not to get involved in the ground war. He simply has allowed that country of his to be a staging ground for Russian own missile and air attacks, as well as, of course, its participation in the ground invasion, uh, the northern passes towards Kiev. So from an alliance perspective, too, the relationship between Belarus and Russia is going to be very interesting. Between everything that's happened since August 2020 and what's happened since February of this year, I think one can reasonably expect there's going to be a cooling of attitudes towards Russia, which is not going to, again, uh, bode well for Russian foreign policy in, in the medium and long term. 
My next question about China, but in the context of Ukraine. Recently, a U.S. diplomat, Kurt Walker, he was a special envoy to Ukraine between two invasions, said to journalists that the victory of Ukraine over Russia will be a signal for China don't attack Taiwan. Then the U.S. Secretary of the State, Antony Blinken, said that if the U.S. allows Russia to seize Ukraine, that may provoke the season of similar wars against other countries. Alexander, what do you think about these statements? The underlying thinking of that statement is that other great powers, meaning China, would draw inspiration from the success of Russia's special military operation against Ukraine thinking that the offense is actually much easier than previously believed so that it can undertake its own offensive operations against Taiwan. There's something to that argument. I don't want to dismiss it entirely, but I think at the end of the day, China will make the decision to attack Taiwan based on local, more contextual factors rather than what is happening in Ukraine. That being said, I don't think China is ignoring uh, what is happening in Ukraine. I think China is paying attention. It might have calculated or have learned that one mistake that Russia had committed earlier is, from their perspective, Russia being rather light in using air power to subdue Ukraine. And so they might think that they would have to launch even more missile attacks, fly even more sorties against Taiwan to soften certain targets before launching a ground invasion. I think that would be one takeaway. It's a simple lesson learned uh, from the conflict, but I don't think they would necessarily attack Taiwan because Russia succeeded in attacking Ukraine. I have a question about the nuclear risks that obviously elevated due to the war launched by the country that has the nuclear weapons. Russia may potentially strike Ukraine by the tactical nuclear bombs, or the Russian military may provoke an incident with nuclear contamination on the occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. In August, for example, they began shelling this Ukrainian plant. What the West can do in this regard? In a sense, Russia has been using nuclear weapons all along throughout this entire special military operation. They don't, of course, use them in the active sense. None has been detonated so far, but they are using nuclear weapons to shield their own activities. And so far as the threat of nuclear retaliation forestalls the ability or willingness on the part of various NATO countries to intervene more directly into the war to fight alongside Ukraine. So in that respect, Russia is practicing nuclear deterrence rather well, but not in the, the nuclear deterrence that we like to think of it. This is much more of a shielding exercise while it undertakes offensive conventional military operations. And I do think that as Russia pours more and more of its own conventional military assets into uh, Ukraine and losing them in so doing, at least in far fairly significant numbers, Russia finds itself relying more and more on the so-called nuclear card in its interactions with NATO countries, including the United States. That it might feel like it has to play a certain game of nuclear brinkmanship in order to extract some sort of course of value at the expense of some of its Western neighbors. I think that's a very real possibility. And I think we need to think carefully about it. I also think that that's a possible future that would arise irrespective of who is in the Kremlin. If it were someone else, someone other than Putin, I think that issue would still be fairly dominant and would be certainly quite concerning. 
But with respect to actual nuclear weapons use over Ukraine, I'm very dubious. I think there has been an elevated risk of nuclear weapons use since, of course, February. I still think the risk is very low. That being said, the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is very concerning. And as much as I'm generally optimistic about the medium to long-term prospects of the Ukraine war effort, that is the one thing that does worry me. But again, that could very well be the uh, nuclear brinkmanship that I've already mentioned. I'm not entirely convinced that Russia would sabotage or undermine that facility in such a way as to generate some sort of crisis, some sort of emergency that would have material uh, implications, not least because that would inflict damage on their own interests. Radiation clouds could very well blow eastward into Russia. I don't think they want that either. But nevertheless, their behavior is absolutely reckless and just shows that they have a fundamental disregard for uh, the basics of arms control and, uh, quite frankly, international law. My next question. Is the West interested in complete defeat of Russia or not necessarily? I mean, will it be okay for the Western partners that Ukraine would just liberate its territories, either recently occupied since February 24th or including all those occupied lands since 2014? In other words, how the victory for Ukraine may look like. If Ukraine succeeds in expelling Russia from its territory, that would be the defeat of Russia, quite frankly. Not necessarily in the sense that we think of defeat like we do with respect to the end of the Second World War. I don't expect Ukraine soldiers to be hoisting up Trident over St. Basil's and Moscow. That's just not going to happen. There will be some sort of negotiated settlement at the end of the day. The question is under what terms. I think the West is totally okay with Ukraine expelling Russian forces from Ukraine territory and under international law. I share the Ukraine frustration that some weapons like HIMARS could should be used against sites located within Russian territory itself, like in Belgorod or even in Belarus. But what was important about the airstrike on the Saki airbase is that it really did show that Ukraine can take the initiative. And if the reports are true, with Russia losing almost several dozen fighter craft, many pilots too, it will take years for Russia to reconstitute its military. The first part of your question was about the West might not necessarily want to defeat Russia, but I think Russia is defeating itself in fighting in Ukraine. It's not an irrational war. I, th I think Putin has his own reasons. It's in the long term very much against the interests of Russia itself. But engaging in actions that are only going to be extremely costly for it in the medium to long term, and it's only going to be a superpower by dint of its nuclear weapons arsenal, but little more. But that's the choice that they've made. While we talk about the security alliance that recently emerged around Ukraine, I have the logical question. Will Ukraine be accepted into NATO in the future? Ukraine has such aspirations for decades, but Russia always used all its diplomatic mechanisms to make sure that the West would never accept Ukraine into this defensive alliance. However, this war shows that the Ukrainian military is quite effective on the battlefield. Soldiers quickly learn the sophisticated Western weapon systems, and Ukrainian government established good working partnerships with the NATO countries. What is your opinion about the possibility for Ukraine to join NATO after the war? I agree with everything you said. I, I don't know how viable the prospects for actual membership really are. 
I don't know how much it really matters either. So on the first part, it really depends on countries like France and Germany. I think those countries have been reluctant in the past. France, maybe less so these days. Germany is much more of an interesting story for all sorts of reasons. And unfortunately, for better or for worse, really, you need to have unanimous consent. So it only takes one to nix a membership initiative. But I don't know how much it really matters because at the end of the day, even before 2022, Ukraine was benefiting mostly from cultivating certain bilateral relationships, not necessarily with NATO itself. Sure, it was granted the status of being an enhanced opportunities program partner like Georgia or Sweden and Finland for that matter. Sure, NATO did help coordinate uh, some of the limited military transfers that countries were giving to Ukraine prior to this year. But a lot of the flashy military assistance that Ukraine has been receiving both before 2022 and after are done on a very bilateral basis. That also includes some of the training that the Canadians have done under Operation Unifier and what the British have also been doing under Operation Orbital. Again, that's all very bilateral. In some respects, Ukraine should be focusing on identifying which of those bilateral relationships are best uh, to cultivate and which groupings of countries uh, within NATO are best to cultivate. So there was, of course, discussion prior to launching of the special military operation of a new trilateral grouping involving the United Kingdom, Poland, and Ukraine. That is one such forum that Ukraine can foster and get a lot out of it. Even if Ukraine joins NATO, it will still be stuck with the question that existing members have, which is whether the rest of the alliance will still support uh, Ukraine if a war were to break out. Uh, that question will not go away. Of course, you'd rather be in the alliance than not. I think we see that in vivid display, considering the fact that NATO has tried very hard not to intervene in the conflict in such a way as to precipitate some sort of Russian response. But those questions will still exist. And so you're better off trying to cultivate particular relationships and extract what value you can get from them in order to enhance your security at the margin. It's all about tilting the balance of probabilities as much as you can in one's favor. And you don't necessarily have to join a military alliance like NATO to do so. Although, of course, uh, NATO should aspire to do so. But as you said, Ukraine has already proved its worth. And I would even argue that Ukraine has much to teach uh, NATO countries about how to fight great power adversary on land in high intensity combat operations. I think there's actually a lot more that could be done. And defense cooperation, I think, is going to be much more of a two way street rather than a one way street in the years ahead. On this optimistic note, I am wrapping up this episode of the podcast Ukraine War Decoded. My guest was Alexander Lanoshka from the University of Waterloo in Canada. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science in the Balsali School of International Affairs. I say goodbye till the next episode. So long. So long.